This is White Collared, the podcast, season two, episode one, withdrawal. I would like to thank you for joining me on this, the first episode of season two of White Collared. If you are new to this podcast, my name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. If you have been a regular listener up to this point, you already know that. If you are a new listener, you also may not be aware that this podcast uses enhanced content. Enhanced content can give you access to web pages and images during the course of the episode. However, if you are using the standard podcast player that came with your device, whether it be a Apple device or a Google device, you don't have a podcast player that supports these additional features. At least the default does not support these additional features. If you would like to check out these enhancements on this podcast or any other podcast that uses them, you can head over to newpodcastapps.com. Check out the podcast apps there that are available for your device, the features that they support, and you may find yourself a new favorite podcast player. I will have a link to that in the show notes and on the White Collared website, and I will give you the information on how to go to that website later in this episode. Now that all the housekeeping is out of the way, let's get into it. Withdrawal first aired on July 13th, 2010. It was written by show creator Jeff Easton and directed by Tim Matheson. After the death of Kate and the incident with OPR agent Garrett Fowler, Peter Burke and Neil Caffrey are on thin ice with the FBI and the DOJ. They also find themselves working to prevent the latest in a series of bank robberies committed by a criminal operating under the moniker the architect. Meanwhile, Neil and Mozzie are convinced that whoever ended up with the music box was likely Kate's killer. But the box has once again disappeared. The episode begins with Peter at what appears to be some sort of hearing, undergoing a grilling by somebody. We don't know who exactly, but since OPR is responsible for investigating misconduct by FBI agents, it seems reasonable to presume that at least some of the people involved in the hearing, perhaps most, or maybe even all of them, are OPR. And of course, OPR is a branch of the Department of Justice. The supposition that some, most, or all of the people involved in the hearing are OPR is supported by the fact that several times when Peter mentions Fowler or mentions OPR, the lead investigator cuts him off or attempts to discredit Peter by saying things like, oh, Garrett Fowler, he's the OPR agent that you shot, isn't he? Now, while it's true that Peter did shoot Fowler, there were extenuating circumstances like the fact that Fowler was holding a gun on both Peter and Diana. And he was threatening them with it, not just trying to engage in some sort of mythical arrest or what have you. He was basically holding them at gunpoint as a criminal. And, of course, the fact that Fowler was not only involved in a clandestine operation against Peter and Neil, but also in a plot to help a convicted felon, Neil, escape. Now, paperwork was generated to make it look okay, to make it look official, to make it look legal. But down underneath the papering over, it was anything but legal. It was anything but proper. But these people don't seem to want to hear any of that. 
So in short, it seems like somebody's trying to cover their own backsides while simultaneously trying to throw Peter under the bus, so to speak. Now, as that scene closes, the lead investigator says, well, why don't we go over the timeline again? I get the sense that he's probably trying to force Peter to recount the details of the events with Fowler, with the plane explosion, over and over and over in an attempt to beat him down until he's so tired and so tired of it that he makes some seemingly inconsistent statement as far as what happened. Not truly inconsistent, but just says it in a different way, for example. But something, anything that can be misconstrued as being inconsistent in order to portray Peter as lying. After the hearing, Peter meets with Diana, who brings him up to date on Fowler, OPR, and on the data that she had on the flash drive that she had copied from Fowler's computer. Well? I'm off suspension, but hanging by a thread. What have you got? Fowler was handed over to OPR two days ago, then not a trace. They're hiding him somewhere. Did you get anything off his hard drive? Good news and bad news. I hacked it, but the data self-corrupted. Ah, self-hating virus. What's the good news? Well, I was able to recover one entry, a date, a time, and a place. So you think Fowler set up a meeting? He's expecting something to happen at 12th and Watershed two months from now. Two months. I should be there. I'll put it on your calendar. Glad to have you back. The idea that OPR was running the interrogation with Peter and that they were trying to cover their tracks and throw Peter under the bus is kind of reinforced here when Diana says they, or whoever it was, handed Fowler over to OPR two days ago and then he disappears. Not a trace. As Peter says, they're hiding him somewhere. Now, why would you hide somebody unless you don't want somebody to find them? And why would you not want somebody to find Fowler? Because he has information that they don't want to get out. They don't want somebody to find. So it all circles back to them trying to cover their tracks, somebody trying to cover their tracks, somebody higher up the food chain, and using the interrogation of Peter at the hearing as a means of trying to accomplish that, or using the people at the hearing as useful idiots to help accomplish that. Now, when Peter asks about the data on the flash drive, Diana says she hacked it, but the data self-corrupted. And Peter says, ah, a self-eating virus. Is there such a thing? I don't think so. Or at least not in the manner in which Peter describes it. Now, I do have some experience with computers. And I'm not talking about just somebody who sits down and types on them. I have been involved in the computer industry in various capacities, sales, building computers, troubleshooting and repairing computers. I've been involved with them for three decades. And to the best of my knowledge, there is no such thing as a self-eating virus. Not as Peter describes it. Or as Peter is thinking of it. But I also did an internet search to see if I could find anything of recent vintage that I might not be aware of that would be the type of thing that Peter might have been referring to. And I didn't find anything. Here's the problem. Computer viruses, Trojan horses, and other forms of malware can corrupt data. But all forms of malware require some sort of engine, if you want to call it that, to allow them to do their work. The malware may be in the form of an executable file or a program file, 
or a macro, which relies on a macro engine, which is part of another program file, such as Microsoft Word, to allow them to do their damage. But data files themselves are inert. It's kind of like a car. On its own, it can't move. I mean, you can have a car, wheels, steering wheel, seats, you know, have everything in a car there, but it will not move unless it has some sort of energy to force it to move. On its own, without some sort of energy source, it can't move. It has to have a motor inside of it to propel it, some other vehicle to tow it or pull it or push it or gravity. But some other energy source has to act in order to get the car to move. And data files are the same way. They can't do anything on their own. There is what appears to be, at first blush, an exception to this rule. And this is the incorporation of steganographic techniques, which hides malware in data files, image files being a popular residing place for that hidden malware. Steganographic infections involve essentially a three-part mixture, of which the data file is the third of the three parts. But the data file itself can do nothing by itself. According to Jerome Segura, who is the Director of Threat Intelligence at Malwarebytes, downloading an image that contains steganography is not a problem in itself. For the payload contained within the malicious image to execute, it must first be called by another program that will execute and then run it. The process starts with a seemingly legitimate program, although so far most of the so-called legitimate programs involved in steganographic infections are actually of questionable legitimacy. They're either cracked versions of a legitimate program designed to let somebody use a program without registering it, without paying for it, and without going through the verification mechanism that the software provider uh, has incorporated into that program. So it's either a cracked version of a legitimate program or a program designed to crack a legitimate program. Again, for the purpose of allowing somebody to use a program without buying it, without registering it, and without going through the verification process to prove that they, in fact, have the right to use the program. Now, the apparent legitimate program, whether it's an, an actual application such as Microsoft Word, Microsoft Office, or the program that's designed to crack one of those, is actually a, a modified program. It's not the original program. It contains the original program, but it also contains a second program. The second program, which runs simultaneously with the first one, which provides camouflage for it, the second program is actually the first part of the infection process. This hidden program attempts to download a specified image file from the internet, then retrieves the hidden encrypted data from the image. Prior to this point, the malware's only mission was to install itself on the target computer, download the target image file, and look inside. The encrypted data it finds inside that image is sort of a recipe telling the malware what to do. Basically, it's giving the malware its new mission of destruction. The second means that this sort of destruction can be initiated. The sort of destruction that Peter describes is by using a very, very poorly thought out feature of Windows. 
called Auto Run. Auto Run was designed to be a convenience. Hey, you pop in a CD-ROM, you pop in a flash drive, you don't have to do anything. It automatically runs the program that's contained on it. A hacker's paradise. This is hacking on a silver platter. Thank you, Microsoft. All you have to do is plug in the flash drive or insert the CD or DVD into your computer. The process automatically runs whatever program is programmed to run. And if that happens to be malware or happens to be a file that launches malware somewhere along the process, congratulations, you've just been hacked. Now, like the steganographic infection, a malware program launched in this way can destroy the data on the device if it's a flash drive. You're not going to be able to do that on a CD-ROM drive because that's read-only. But on a flash drive, you can actually program the executable file in the auto-run instructions to delete the data on the flash drive or corrupt it. Peter and Diana specifically say corrupt because if you delete a file off of a computer, it's not really gone. It's still there. You have to know how to find it. You have to have some special tools or special knowledge to find it, but it's still there. But if it launches a program that is designed to corrupt the data, well, that's a different story. And that's what they're talking about here. But again, to the best of my knowledge, there is no such thing as self-corrupting data, which is what Peter and Diana are talking about here. So I think they're just being sloppy in their terminology. I think what it probably was was an auto run. But anyway, back to the episode. After Peter and Diana have their exchange, Peter visits Neil, who is back in prison. They give you your badge back? Yeah. Justice finished its inquiry. Then why am I still here? Ain't I blew up the plane? They don't know what to think. Fowler disappeared. OPR is denying mentor existed. I got paperwork that proves it did. Yeah, and I've been reminded that you're one of the best forgers on the planet. Listen, there's a chance I can reinstate our deal. From one prison to another. Overstating that a little. One thing, if we do this again... I have to know who killed Kate. I'll find out. I'll tell you. That's how it works. Can I get back to you? You're looking at three and change. Your only choice is to serve out your time with me or rot in this place. I'm going to have to interrupt this meeting, gentlemen. The defendant has requested the presence of his attorney. Fuck some sense in him. We'll take that under advisement, suit. What sense am I talking into you? Peter offered me my old deal. Tempted? I'm open to exploring my options. I can get you out of here, but it'll cost. Apparently, Neil was put back in prison pending the investigation into the plane explosion that killed Kate. I can't really think of any, let's say, legitimate reason why Neil would be back into prison. They can't say he violated the terms of his parole because everything that he did was under the table. Uh, there was no evidence that it had happened. For example, the theft of the music box from the Italian consulate. There's no apparent violation of the terms of his release because 
the theft, well, first of all, the Italians probably wouldn't have said anything about it to anybody because as was mentioned back in the Out of the Box episode, the Italian consul was not supposed to have it in the first place. Now, I realize that things are kind of cockeyed and upside down these days, but even now, it's it's highly doubtful that somebody who is a criminal would go reporting the theft of an item that they had stolen from them that they stole from somebody else and weren't supposed to have. So I doubt the Italians said anything about it. Now, the FBI, or at least individuals within the FBI, have knowledge of that theft because Fowler knew about the theft and whoever Fowler was working for knew about the theft. But they really couldn't use that as a justification because that would require admitting the FBI's involvement in the theft by way of the mentor operation and through Fowler and through whoever he's working for. There is no real evidence that he was attempting an escape. Now, in a sense, he was attempting to sort of escape with Fowler's help, but it was all legitimate in the sense that there was official FBI paperwork making it appear legitimate. Now, granted, the paperwork itself was not legitimate, but on paper, Neil's escape was, in fact, legitimate. And again, if they were going to try to use the faked paperwork as a basis for uh, putting him back in jail by saying he violated his, his the terms of his release with Peter, they would have to acknowledge that the paperwork was faked and that Fowler was involved in generating the faked paperwork, which in turn would lead back to Mentor. So that one really doesn't fly. There is no evidence to suggest that Neil was involved in the explosion, which does seem to be the focus of the inquiry, or the Inquisition, if you want to call it that, with Peter. Now, since that was kind of the focus of the inquiry, at least as it was presented, it would seem that the only justification for Neil's reincarceration would be an unfounded allegation that he was somehow involved in the explosion. But again, there's, there's no real evidence. It would just be an allegation. Although, again, in these topsy-turvy times, sometimes the allegation is viewed as evidence when, in fact, it really isn't. But when you're the FBI, you can kind of make up your own rules as you go along, and who's going who's gonna to argue with you? You're the FBI. If they try to argue with you, you'll put them in jail, too. You'll charge them with a crime, and you'll go after them with everything you've got and force them into a corner where they have to accept whatever demands they make of you. Now, Neil does have documentation to prove that Mentor existed and that it was being run from within the FBI and that it was an operation designed for forcing Neil to illegally get the music box for somebody within the FBI. But Neil finds himself in something of an unexpected turnabout. Peter says that OPR is denying that Mentor existed. But even though Neil has legitimate proof of its existence and his innocence, no one's going to believe that it's legitimate. As Peter says, Neil is one of the best forgers on the planet. So all they have to do is claim, no, it's not legitimate. He forged it. And it can be difficult to prove the negative. You can't always prove that you didn't do something, which is why our criminal justice system is supposed to be based on the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. But it's understandable that people wouldn't believe Neil, even though he has actual, real, legitimate documentation proving that Mentor existed and that all this corruption was going on. 
what people do is what establishes the sort of person they are and how people will perceive them. Because a person's reputation and past behavior is the only thing that people have by which to judge that person. When a person's reputation is that everything they claim is true is actually a lie, then no one will believe them when they actually do say something truthful because it sounds the same. And they're making the same claims as before when they were lying. I'm telling you the truth. Well, last time when I told you that it was the truth, I was lying. But this time when I'm telling you the truth, it's the truth. How do you tell the difference? You really can't. You have to go based on the person's reputation and their past behavior. And Neil's past behavior is, don't believe him. He's an expert forger. He's a liar. In spite of all that, Peter does tell Neil that there is a chance to reinstate the previous deal. Now, Neil doesn't jump at the chance. I think Peter's a little bit surprised. Peter tells Neil, your only choice is to serve out your time with me or rot in this place. The way Peter sees it, there's only two options. But it seems that there might be a third option on the table when Mozzie tells Neil, I can get you out of here, but it'll cost. Of course, the question is, what is Mozzie suggesting? It doesn't sound like spending money on an attorney to appeal his case would really be of any use since he has the three and change, as Peter put it, left on his sentence, and that being the remainder of the four additional years that Neil received for his escape in the pilot episode. So even by hiring a lawyer, Mozzie, and trying to fight it through courts, it's not very likely that Neil would succeed. So it seems like funding an escape and the subsequent evasion is the only other alternative here. But it is an alternative and one that Peter didn't acknowledge, either intentionally or because he just, he didn't think that way and it just never occurred to him. But I think that's what Mozzie's talking about here. And we kind of get the impression that Neil might have gone with that third option of escape. When we move into the next sequence, which takes place two months later, according to the information on the screen, we're sort of led to believe that he chose the escape option. We see him on a mission where he's pushing a janitor's cart and then cuts into a tube of a pneumatic tube transport system, placing the documents with the name of N. Halden in a tube carrier, shooting it off, and after that, he infiltrates the bank using the documents which have, in the meantime, arrived at the front desk via the tube transport system. After he's admitted into the bank with those false credentials, he enters the vault, uh, which he, he enters by using a stolen swipe card because the one that he created for Nick Halden isn't programmed, and so he needed to steal one so he could get into the vault, which he did, from the uh, bank receptionist or information lady, whatever you want to call her. And once he's in the vault, he fills a briefcase full of cash, walks out of the bank, and is immediately greeted by Peter and Jones. Of course, it's here we realize that Neil is back to work with the FBI. Many people in the U.S. and probably around the world have encountered one of these tube systems, most likely at a bank. When you go in through the drive-up teller, some of the aisles will have a drawer that you just put stuff in and goes directly to the, the teller. Others will be remote and use a carrier in one of these tube systems to carry the documents, the money, and whatever from the car to the teller and back. The invention of the pneumatic tube transport system dates back to 1799 and a Scottish engineer named William Murdoch. Not to be confused with the detective of the same name from the popular book series and CBC television series, although I suspect that the name William Murdoch 
was a deliberate naming choice by the author of the books, Maureen Jennings. The William Murdoch that we're talking about here was born in Lugar near Comnock, Ayrshire in Scotland in 1754. He was the third of seven children and the first son to survive beyond infancy. Murdoch was educated until the age of 10 at Old Comnock Kirk School before attending Achenlech School under William Halbert, who was the author of a highly regarded arithmetic textbook. Murdoch excelled in mathematics and also learned the principles of mechanics, practical experimentation, and working in metal and wood by assisting in his father's work. There are reports that in his youth, Murdoch was responsible for the construction of one of the bridges over the River Nith. In 1777, at the age of 23, Murdoch walked to Birmingham, a distance of over 300 miles or 480 kilometers, to ask for a job with James Watt, the steam engineer manufacturer. Watt's partner, Matthew Bolton, was so impressed by Murdoch's wooden hat that he had made on a lathe of his own design that he hired him. Murdoch's career began with Bolton and Watt in the pattern workshop of their Soho foundry, making patterns for the castings of machine parts. Murdoch progressed up to working in fitting and erecting steam engines, and in September 1779 was sent to Redruth in Cornwall as a senior engine erector, responsible for the erection, maintenance, and repair of Bolton and Watt engines. These engines were used for pumping water out of the Cornish tin mines, and therefore the efficiency and efficacy of the engines was an important factor in the amount of tin and therefore the amount of money that could be extracted from a mine. At the time, steam engines were not simply sold to customers, but were in fact operated and maintained by the builders for groups or individuals known as adventurers or shareholders. The engine manufacturers were not paid for a completed engine, but through a complex formula calculated on the basis of that engine's performance. Therefore, Murdoch's skills in getting the most out of his engines directly impacted upon Bolton and Watt's profits. This he did so successfully that by 1782, Bolton wrote, We want more Murdochs, for of all others, he is the most active man and the best engine erector I ever saw. When I look at the work done, it astonishes me and is entirely owing to the spirit and activity of Murdoch, who hath not gone to bed three of the nights. While based in Cornwall, Murdoch had to deal with a wide range of mechanical problems related to steam engines, and this led him to make practical improvements to the steam engine designs used by Bolton and Watts. And from 1782, Murdoch was discussing and collaborating with Watts on a number of inventions and improvements. One of Murdoch's most significant inventions, although patented by James Watt under his name, was the sun and planet gear mechanism, which converted the vertical motion of a beam from a steam engine into circular motion, thus enabling the engine to move the wheels of a mill or other machines. Another innovation and invention of Murdoch's was a more simplified and efficient steam wheel, which was a precursor to the steam turbine and Britain's first working model of a steam carriage or road locomotive. Murdoch is also credited with the invention, if we can call it that, uh, which was the application of gas lighting as a replacement for oil and tallow-produced light. In addition to his mechanical work, Murdoch also experimented in the fields of chemistry and made a number of discoveries. Now, of course, none of this has any direct bearing to the, the topic of the pneumatic tube transport systems, but it does give you an idea of 
how brilliant this guy was. But of course, what we are interested in here is that Murdoch carried out a number of experiments with compressed air and developed the first pneumatic message system, which worked by using compressed air to propel a message in a cylinder through a tube to its intended destination, essentially the pneumatic tube transport system that we're familiar with today. The system was developed by the London Pneumatic Dispatch Company, and in 1853, a 200-meter pneumatic tube system between the London Stock Exchange in Threadneedle Street of London and the offices of the Electric Telegraph Company in Lothbury was installed. The Electric Telegraph Company used the system to acquire stock prices and other financial information to pass to subscribers of their service over their telegraph wires. The advantage of the pneumatic system was that without it, the company would have had to have employed a number of runners to carry the messages between the two buildings or else employ trained telegraph operators within the stock exchange. By the mid-1860s, the company had installed similar systems to local stock exchanges in Liverpool, Birmingham, and Manchester. As previously indicated, most people in the U.S. would have had some contact with them at the drive-up at a bank to transport the cash between their car and the teller. But many hospitals have a computer-controlled pneumatic tube system to deliver drugs, documents, and specimens to and from laboratories and nurses stations. Many factories use them to deliver parts quickly across large campuses, and many larger stores still use the systems to securely transport excess cash from checkout stands to the back office and to send change back to the cashiers. And in what may qualify as the most bizarre use of a pneumatic tube transport system, a McDonald's in Edina, Minnesota claimed to be the world's only pneumatic air drive through sending food from their strip mall location to a drive through in the middle of the parking lot until the store closed in early 2011. So how do these systems work? The system consists of a sending station and a receiving station. The receiving station is sometimes called the powered station because it provides the air power that moves the packages back and forth. It has a compressed air pump attached that can either suck air from the tube or blow air into the tube according to the direction that the tube container needs to be sent. Most of the time, the receiving station will be in receiving mode, which means that the compressor will be working like a vacuum cleaner, sucking air along the tube from the sending station. If somebody wants to send cash from the sending station, they simply load it into the carrier, which is only slightly smaller than the tube and a very snug fit. They place the carrier into the tube in the sending station and then close the door. When it's properly loaded, it will block and seal the tube. As the compressed air sucks on the tube, it creates a partial vacuum in front of the canister that sucks it all the way along until it reaches the receiving station where it can be unloaded. And the canister, of course, can be sent in the opposite direction simply by setting the compressor to blow air along the tube in the opposite direction of the sucking motion. So behind the canister, pushing it along. Systems can be quite sophisticated and complex using devices such as diverters to create branching paths in a pipeline. The more complex the system, the more diverters it needs in order to create the multiple path combinations in the same way as the cascading rail switches in a railroad yard create multiple paths for trains and cars to be moved. Devices such as diverters allow the carriers to change the direction of travel by switching and turning pipes. This all happens quite quickly, and it's easy to miss even if you fixate your eyes on the pipes. In an interesting new technological twist of the technology, Tesla electric car pioneer Elon Musk has proposed using a scaled-up version of the tube technology to transport people between cities at high speeds in a system known as a Hyperloop. 
But lest you think Elon Musk is a genius for coming up with the idea, be aware that two centuries ago, way back in 1829, artist William Heath drew up an illustration proposing a very similar idea. His work showed a vacuum tube transport that would be used to speed people on carriages from London, England to Bengal, India. The drawing was called The March of Intellect, and it was a joke. So, back into the episode, I have a question about the tube station in the basement. Why was it there? Obviously, the basement is not being used for anything actively these days. And there would be no reason for an active and functional tube station to be down there. Now, I'm presuming that at some point in the past, there was a use for it down there. Somebody was down in the basement working there. They needed to be able to send documents or, or money or something back and forth to other people in the bank. And so they were down there. They had this tube station that they would be using to do that. But since the basement isn't being used, why was it still active? It, it's, a, it's a waste of money, a waste of energy. And as we see here, a potential security issue. Another question is, why didn't Neil bring any duct tape to reseal the tube after he cut it? Now, the thing about these tubes is they, they rely on vacuum. And if you cut a container that has a vacuum, you no longer have a vacuum. Now, once he put the carrier into the tube, it would have acted as a seal to some degree, but it still, it still potentially would have compromised the system, still potentially have compromised the ability of the carrier that he was trying to send up to the upper floor, uh, compromised the ability of that carrier to get to its final destination by compromising the integrity of the vacuum. So why didn't he bring duct tape? Questions, Neil? Questions? Think. Anyway, after we see Neil do his little escapade in the bank, getting the money, walking out, being greeted by Peter and Jones outside the bank and handing them the money, next thing we see is Peter and Neil are briefing a group of officials from the Midtown Mutual Banks, telling them that Renee Simmons, who is the person in charge of all the security for all the bank branches, had requested that the FBI conduct a test on bank securities. Neil tells the group about flaws in their security, and Peter tells the officials that they believe that the person who had sent each of them a card from somebody calling himself the architect is the same person who had hit banks in Dallas, Chicago, and Boston over the previous five years, and that if he follows the same MO, he will hit one of their branches within the week. After the briefing, Peter, Neil, and Renee Simmons are in Peter's office. Peter is trying to put on a brave face, but he and Neil are clearly not on the same page. That went great. I'm sure they'll sleep soundly tonight. So what do I tell them when they start to panic? Tell them that we're shoring up their security and that the Bureau is on it. Did that help in Dallas, Chicago, and Boston? This is New York. We'll catch him. I hope so. We'll catch him. At your halftime speech? Well, you could have said something. This guy is amazing, right? Dallas was good. Chicago was a work of art. Boston? I still don't know how to Boston. Really? We better figure out how, because I do not want to add Manhattan to that list. You holding up? Yeah. Yeah, I'm holding up. You sure? Yeah. Come on up.
despite all his bravado, Peter is clearly concerned about the situation with the architect. First, he's concerned by the fact that Neil is impressed by this guy's skills, and worse, that he seems to have no clue how their suspect managed to pull off one of his previous heists. But he's also concerned about Neil himself. Neil seems to be doing okay on the surface, but he's clearly distracted and stressed. And we see, and apparently so does Peter, Neil's hand shaking and his fidgeting nervously as he's working on a study of the architect's business card. This is the sort of thing we've never seen from Neil before under any circumstance. He's he's been stressed. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's never been stressed before. He's never been in a situation where he's been distracted. But he never let it show in this way. This is out of the ordinary for Neil. In the next sequence, we see Peter meeting Mozzie in a park. And I think we see a level of paranoia here from Mozzie that we did not see in season one. Uh, there's chalk arrows on the ground. There's the newspaper tap-tap on the armrest of the bench that Peter's been directed to do. Peter's supposed to open the Times to the international section, which he refuses to do. Uh, Mozzie's using a voice changer. But Mozzie's paranoia aside, the two of them do have something to discuss that is of real concern to both of them. How's Neil doing? You spend just as much time with him as I do. I need him. I am counting on him. A lot of people are counting on him, and I don't need him going Section 8 on me. He's not exactly forthcoming. Kate's only been dead two months. No one can snap back that fast. Are you telling me the two of you aren't looking into what happened at that airport? The question was, how's he doing? Not, what is he doing? All right, then what do you think? Quid pro quo. He's got the shakes. He's flashing back to that moment in his mind, and he's freaking out about it. Your turn. As you may imagine, he's a little curious as to who may have killed Kate. Does he think whoever killed her was trying to kill him? It's crossed his mind. All right, I'll keep looking into things on my side. Until you hear from me, let's keep him busy. We've got a good case now, so let's keep him working on that. How do I do that? You're his friend. You'll figure it out. It makes sense that Neil would be concerned that whoever killed Kate was aiming for him. Now, whether Kate was also intended to be a target as well, or if she was just collateral damage, that that isn't discussed here as a possibility one way or the other. But I think it's safe to say, based on the reasoning we applied in Out of the Box, that whomever is behind the conspiracy would not want any loose ends. And that Kate would be as much a target as Neil because she was involved in it as much as Fowler, as much as Neil, as much as anybody. And the fact that they missed Neil has to have him concerned, has to have whoever was behind the conspiracy concerned. The idea that Neil was the intended target would have occurred to Peter and Mozzie as well. And of course, it would have Peter and Mozzie and his friends concerned, which sort of explains Mozzie's paranoia. After all, Mozzie is Neil's friend. And as indicated here, Mozzie and Neil have discussed the possibility that Neil was as much of the target as Kate was, or that he was the target and Kate was collateral damage. So Mozzie is concerned for Neil. He's concerned for his safety. They don't know who's behind it. As far as Mozzie's concerned, it could be Peter. 
Mozzie's never really trusted Peter. Not fully. I mean, he they've, they've come to kind of a working relationship in a weird kind of way, but he still has this re residual distrust of Peter simply because Peter is FBI and the FBI was behind all this. Or at least people in the FBI were behind all this. But Mozzie seems to be especially harsh in his attitude toward Peter. Uh, and give, even given everything I just mentioned, he seems to be overly harsh. Certainly more so than he had become over the course of season one. But Peter isn't to blame for the situation. Now, Mozzie may not fully believe that, but I think in part from having worked with Peter, he should have some, at least, he, he should at least be willing to concede the possibility that Peter isn't responsible for the situation. He certainly didn't create the situation with Fowler and whoever's behind him pulling his strings. And Peter was not the one who stole the music box in the first place. Neil was, or rather, Neil let everyone believe he had stolen the music box. And that's really what started this whole thing rolling. I guess the best cause for Mozzie's tone toward Peter is his anger toward the FBI and the corrupt agents within it. And Peter, even if Mozzie has gotten to the point, which I think he should have been, uh, which I think he is really, of being somewhat trusting of Peter, I think the fact that Peter is FBI means that he's the representation of that in Mozzie's mind, the representation of the corrupt agents within the agency. And so Peter's basically just the undeserving target of Mozzie's anger toward these corrupt agents. Well, granted, it isn't fair of Mozzie, but given that Mozzie has a general attitude of anger toward law enforcement in general, understandable, he's a, he's a criminal, and the FBI in particular, and he seems to be one of those people who, like many others, gets angry on behalf of their friends, but can't seem to get over their anger even after their friends have, or even if their friends didn't get angry at all. All of that combined, he just seems to... to let it all dump on Peter. And it's just frustration, I think, more than anything else. Just frustration at the situation, frustration at not knowing who's behind it, frustration at not knowing whether, uh, I was going to say, at not knowing whether Neil is safe or not, but we he's, he's really not. Just not knowing where the next attack on Neil, the next assault on Neil, the next effort to get rid of Neil will come from. Now, the next scene prompts so many questions in my mind. What we've been seeing with Peter and Neil in the Midtown Mutual Bank took place two months after the scene where Peter visited Neil in the prison and offered him the old deal back. Now, we can expect it took a while for the paperwork to be processed and approved and, and for Neil to get back out of prison, back to working with Peter and the FBI. But he's been out of prison at least for a little while. I mean, it doesn't seem reasonable that he would get out of prison, hit the bank, do everything we saw, be involved with the briefing with the bank officials, and of course, all the things that we didn't see, but can reasonably presume took place. And all this happened in the course of less than a day. It just doesn't seem reasonable. So where's Neil been staying since he got out of prison? It certainly wasn't his old apartment, because it's pretty clear here from this scene that this is the first time June has seen him since he's gotten out. And it seems to be the first time that Mozzie's seen him. Now, June does say, I couldn't bear the thought of you being at that motel, which suggests that perhaps the FBI had put him back in the Empire Motel, which was 
the same motel they had put him up in initially back in the pilot and the motel where Peter stayed briefly, albeit very briefly, in the episode Home Invasion. But why would Neil be there? Like I said, the FBI may have wanted to put him up there, but why wouldn't Neil have simply contacted June and asked if his old room was still available and then moved back in? And clearly, June had held the room for him, so she didn't have a problem with him coming back. The only explanation I can come up with, and for which I have absolutely nothing as a basis for this supposition, other than the lack of anything else to the contrary, is that perhaps Neil was embarrassed at what happened, embarrassed to face June and his old apartment. He was uncertain of whether it was wise to go back there, perhaps initially concerned for not only his own safety, but June's as well. I mean, after all, whoever killed Kate was presumably after him as well and knew where he had lived. And it's only reasonable to presume that they knew where he lived because the people who were after him are FBI and the FBI would have known where he's been staying. He might have felt that going back there would make it that much easier for them, whoever them was, to find him and which would potentially have put June in harm's way. But that really doesn't make sense because, again, even staying at the Empire Motel, they would have known where to find him because the FBI put him up there. And if he was concerned about June's safety and his safety, why would he then suddenly change his mind and come back? The concern about putting June in harm's way may not have been a reasonable concern. After all, having tried it once and failed to kill him, and having done so in such an obvious manner, I don't think their next attempt would be quite as blatant. I think it would be more subtle, more discreet, and therefore less likely to involve collateral damage. And besides, this wasn't June's first rodeo. Her husband, Byron, was a felon, so she presumably had some experience in dealing with unexpected situations that involved threats to her safety. So you know, perhaps Neil came to realize that the potential threat to June wasn't as significant as he might have first imagined. And I really can't see him staying at the Empire Motel any longer than absolutely necessary, or at all. The second question is this. Wait, this is the first time Mozzie has seen Neil since he got out of prison? That's what this scene seems to suggest. But this notion seems to be at odds with the conversation that Mozzie had with Peter in the park. The impression that I get back in that scene is that Mozzie and Neil have been spending time together since Neil got out of prison, and that Peter's question, how's Neil doing, and Mozzie's response, you spend as much time with him as I do, is not a reference to the two spending time chatting in the prison visitor's room. After all, if Mozzie was referring to time spent with Neil in the prison visitor's room, he would have probably have said to Peter, you spend more time with him than I do. Or he would have said, I haven't seen him since he got out of prison. Something to indicate that he was seen Neil less than Peter and hadn't seen him since he got out. And again, we really can't logically create a scenario where Neil got out in the morning and in the afternoon shows up at June's house. So how to explain the seeming discrepancy while staying within the white-collar world? I can't. I can't come up with an even implausible explanation for this apparent discrepancy without leaving the world of white-collar. So I'm open to suggestions. If you have an explanation for this seeming discrepancy that I'm overlooking and which doesn't break the fourth wall, shoot me an email. I'll have info on how you can do that at the end of the episode. And if you can come up with an explanation that sort of makes sense to me, I will put that into 
one of the future episodes and make reference to that and give you credit for that because I don't have an explanation and I would like one. Next, we have a scene with Mozzie and Neil going over everything that Mozzie could get relative to Neil's search for Kate, Fowler, and Operation Mentor. Alex has disappeared. Neil seems frustrated at the lack of new information about the current location of the box. The last information has the box being logged into evidence in the New York office of the FBI, and then nothing. Neil seems to be losing his grip on the situation, so Mozzie tries to steer the conversation in a different direction and away from the topic of frustration for Neil. And that direction is to the case. The architect. That's an excellent sobriquet. Is this your first case back? Yeah. I need a new nickname. Mozzie's not cutting it anymore? What about um, the question? Or perhaps the skeptic? Con man. The, the architect. He's a bank robber? A good one. Since when are you concerned with FBI cases? Uh, since you started spiraling into the dark place. And as you may remember, I have colluded on a bank heist or two in my day. Come on. What do we got? Mozzie says, I need a new nickname. To which Neil responds, Mozzie's not cutting it anymore. So Mozzie is not Mozzie's name? Or a shortened nicknamed version of his name? As, you know, Bob is for Robert or Rob is for Robert or Bill is for William or something like that. We know that Dante Haversham is one of his aliases, but I don't recall anything having been said previously to indicate that Mozzie is also an alias. Or I guess possibly I'm misunderstanding what's being said here. And to be, be honest, uh, my memory has always been suspect and now more than ever. But if my memory is correct, this is the first indication that we've had that Mozzie is, in fact, just another alias. Again, we also have a suggestion that Mozzie and Neil have not been in contact since Neil was released back into the care of the FBI when Mozzie asks, is this your first case back? Which brings me back to the earlier question I had about the conversation between Mozzie and Peter and how that fits in with this, the whole notion of this being their first contact since Neil got back from prison. During the discussion here, Neil brings up the question, if you left a calling card, how would you sign it? Or to put it in a more direct way, what's the architect trying to say with the card? And of course, Mozzie throws that back and says, no, the better question is, if you were him, if you were the architect, what card would you leave? Or to put it another way, what does the card say about the architect? I think Mozzie has two points here. First, that what the architect is trying to say with the card can't be trusted. It's a false front. It's an attempt to mislead, similar to what Neil does when he assumes the persona of a, another person as part of a con. Second, I think Mozzie's suggesting that hints of a person's personality, bits and pieces of their real self, will come through even when they are trying to hide and suppress those. And that by studying the card for what it is and what it says from what it is, rather than studying the card for what it's supposed to mean, 
Neil, Mozzie, and the suits may learn more about this architect than he intended to let them learn. And it may reveal things about him that he didn't intend to reveal. Next, we see that Neil has been studying obscure Russian painters. This leads him to conclude that the A on the business card is a copy of the A in the signature of painter Ivan Avazovsky, which in turn leads them to the name of a possible suspect, Edward Walker. Now, a little bit about Ivan Avazovsky here. Ivan Avazovsky was a 19th century Russian romantic painter who is considered to be one of the greatest masters of marine art. During his nearly 60-year career, beginning in the early 1840s and continuing right up to his death in 1900, Avazovsky built his reputation on naval battle scenes, coastal scenes, and various maritime paintings. The vast majority of his works are set in Russia, and particularly in his native Crimea. Avazovsky came from an Armenian family, and many of his works take on Armenian themes, which has made them popular in Armenian museums and private collections. Although Avazovsky's career coincided with the Romantic era of Russian art, and he is considered a Romantic Russian artist, and the majority of his works do adhere to the Romantic principles of majestic natural landscapes and dramatic lighting, in his later career, he embraced elements of the Realist movement and a number of works, such as Moscow in Winter from Sparrow Hills, fit squarely into the realism genre. Ivan Konstantinovich Avizovsky, christened Hovanis Avizian, Hovanis being the Armenian form of Ivan, was born in 1817 in Theodosia, which was a Crimean Black Sea port. Although the port was small, it had been a hub of cosmopolitan trade for centuries, with the 14th century Arab traveler reported to have seen 200 ships in its harbor. Ivan's father was an Armenian merchant who had lost much of his wealth when the town was struck by a plague five years before Ivan's birth. He was the youngest of three sons and grew up in the family's small one-story house on a hill above the port from where he had a panoramic view of the sea. Family lore has it that young Ivan began drawing with samovar charcoal on the whitewashed walls of the family house. Whether with these drawings or in some other way, his talent attracted the attention of his father's friend, who was an architect. He gave the boy lessons in perspective and showed the resulting drawings to the town's governor, who was a cultured and well-connected man who would open doors for the talented young Armenian. Young Ivan became friends with the town governor's son and was given watercolors and paper by the governor, whose promotion to provincial responsibilities saw him move his family to Semphropol, which was the capital of the province. Ivan went with them and attended school there, with Ivan's circle of friends expanding to include the son of Natalia Fedorovna Nareshkin. Sorry, I'm really bad at names. I've told you this before. I haven't improved. Anyway, she was a woman with links to Russian nobility who took a liking to Ivan and helped him secure a six-year scholarship at the Imperial Academy of Arts in St. Petersburg. When Emperor Nicholas I invited French seascape painter Philippe Tanur to St. Petersburg in 1835, the Academy was asked to supply an assistant, and Avazovsky was given the job. But in the middle of the job, Avazovsky took time off sick to complete a painting of his own, which won a silver medal at the Academy's exhibition that year. Tanur was apparently not happy at having been deceived and taken advantage of by the young painter and demanded the removal of Avazovsky's painting from the exhibition. But the emperor asked to see Avazovsky and, impressed by the meeting, bought the painting for the Winter Palace, 
and sent the up-and-coming painter to sea with Baltic Fleet as an opportunity to do more maritime painting. After another attachment as an observer with a naval unit engaged in skirmishes along the Black Sea coast, Abazovsky's studies in Europe began with the support of the Academy as part of his gold medal award and according to the Academy's practice of sending its promising students to European capitals. Abazovsky spent time in Berlin, Vienna, and Rome, where he lived for two years, and his Italian travels also took him to Venice, Florence, and Naples, while other trips included Holland, England, and six months in Paris. When he returned in his late 20s to Russia, Abazovsky became an academician in the Imperial Academy of Arts. He was already more successful than contemporaries such as Alexei Tyranov, who painted his portrait in 1841. He was appointed the Russian Navy's chief painter, which allowed him to produce more seascapes, coastal scenes, and naval battles, which were his favorite themes. In 1845, after traveling to Constantinople, which he viewed romantically as the spiritual capital of the world, he settled in his hometown of Theodosia, where he built an impressive house and studio and enjoyed some celebrity holding major exhibitions of his work there in 1846. In 1847, he became a professor of seascape painting at the Academy. Abazovsky would continue to paint prolifically and lucratively until his last exhibition in St. Petersburg in 1900, not long before his death. Back in the episode, having narrowed down the suspect list to Edward Walker, Peter and Neil go to visit Walker, and they find him hitting golf balls off the roof of his home into the Hudson River. I don't know about you, but I almost immediately took a dislike to him. And not just because he's our prime suspect either. He has the arrogant, dismissive attitude of one who feels entitled and superior. And I just don't like him. There's quite a bit of verbal sparring between Neil, Peter, and Walker, who sort of taunts Neil by asking if he intended to steal one of Walker's Avazoskis, uh, pointing out that he's noticed the anklet. Having been pressured by Walker to take a swing, Neil hits the golf ball off the roof, which Walker says Neil sliced into the Chelsea Pier. Now, if you're not a golfer, some of the golf terms may be unfamiliar to you. A slice is an unintended and undesired left-to-right movement of a golf ball during flight for a right-handed golfer. So imagine standing facing the hole that you're shooting at, then, for a right-handed person, turn 90 degrees to the right, raise the left arm, pointing it straight out with the arm and shoulders, all forming a straight line, pointing directly at the hole you're aiming at. That, of course, is the direction that you want the ball to travel. Now, if you move your left arm forward so that your arm is no longer pointing straight with your shoulders and is pointing at a forward angle in relationship to the line that your shoulders make, that is the direction that a ball travels when it's sliced. Now, there's a corresponding but opposite shot called a hook, where the ball travels from right to left for a right-handed person. This would be like moving your outstretched arm backward rather than forward in the previous illustration. And of course, for a left-handed person, everything would be opposite. After Neil buggers the shot, Peter gets to the point with Walker, and he says, where were you on April 19th of last year? Walker's response is essentially, nah, 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 I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, sure, he says it in a more sophisticated manner, using a little bit of legalese, but it amounts to the same thing. Uh, despite the manner in which he says it, he's basically engaging in a childish taunt of Peter and Neil. 
I know. I'm not going to tell you. And you can't make me. So it's all very childish on his part. I mean, after all, what's the old saying? If you didn't do anything wrong, well, okay. Any rational person knows that that's nonsense. But his taunt is a little bit over the top and very telling. And of course, as a final almost admission of his guilt, he tells Neil, hey, the next time you commit a crime, don't get caught. Essentially telling Neil that he, Walker, is a better criminal than Neil because he hasn't been caught, and presumably because they have no evidence. Of course, he's, he's saying that he's that good and that he's that much better than Neil. After their meeting with Walker, Peter and Neil are discussing him and the likelihood, or at least the possibility, that he's the architect. Peter's concerned that Walker got to Neil. He warns Neil not to do anything stupid and reminds him that they have a lot of eyes looking on them right now, and it won't take much for them to both be in the doghouse and warns, again, don't do anything stupid. Now, in this conversation, I hear the first hint of something that I see more dramatically in, in a later scene, and that is a reference to the movie The Thomas Crown Affair. Peter asks, why would somebody like him do it? He doesn't need the money. So why would he risk going to prison for an adrenaline rush? Neil points out that Peter has already answered his own question when he had said earlier that Walker has too much time on his hands. He's bored. Walker himself also essentially admitted his motive when he echoed Peter's comment that he had too much time on his hands. And I know many people undoubtedly have heard the saying from a grandparent or great-grandparent when they were young, idle hands are a devil's workshop which is loosely, very loosely based on Proverbs 16.27, which in the more traditional King James reads, an ungodly man diggeth up evil. Although some modern translations do translate that verse almost literally into idle hands or the devil's workshop. Next, there's a short scene where Diana reminds Peter of Fowler's upcoming meeting and briefs him on the locations, or at least the likely locations of the meeting. And then next, we see that Neil has apparently followed Walker's assistant, Whitney, to a restaurant where he initiates a conversation with her. Of course, it's just a way to steal the phone from her temporarily so that Mozzie can clone the SIM card from her phone. And simultaneous to that arranged meeting between Neil and Whitney, Peter and Elizabeth are at what appears to be an outdoor restaurant. How's Neil doing? Great. As far as he says. He's putting up a facade, huh? Of course he is. It's his natural state. Problem is, I don't know how bad it is. What do you think? I think he went through one hell of a trauma. I also think if he was ready for a straight jacket, he'd be grinning and saying, Peter, you have to trust me. Well, it's gonna take him some time to become himself again. There was this moment right before the plane exploded. Neil was walking away from me. He stopped and he turned around and he was about to say something. Then he what do you think he was going to say? I don't know. Do you think he was going to stay? Leave Kate? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Well, I think it matters. Why? It's kind of a moot point now. It matters to you. You know, I'm always going to put a Peter and Elizabeth scene in this. And this is that scene for this episode. Now, it isn't just a Peter and Elizabeth scene because 
in a real sense, it's also a Peter Neal scene. First of all, we see that Peter has really developed an understanding of Neal. He not only recognizes that Neal is trying to hide his emotional state behind a facade, but also that, as he puts it, if he was ready for a straitjacket, he'd be grinning and saying, Peter, you have to trust me, which I think is an indication that Peter believes that Neil is doing more than just hiding his feeling from others, but is also denying them to himself. Second, I think we see an indication that Peter has some notion that just before the plane exploded, Neil might have been considering not leaving. But he also seems to dismiss the notion that he would have been considering it because that would mean leaving Kate. And Peter doesn't seem to think that that uh, he could have broken the spell that Kate has on Neil. And he further tries to dismiss the notion by telling Elizabeth that what Neil was or wasn't going to do, what he might or might not have been thinking about doing, or what Peter thinks Neil might have been thinking or about doing, it, none of that matters because it's over, it's done, the plane blew up, the entire situation has been made moot. Elizabeth points out that what Neil was or wasn't going to do or what he might or might not have been considering doing or saying does in fact matter because it matters to Peter. I don't think she's really telling Peter anything he doesn't already know. I think he realizes that whatever Neil might have been thinking or might have been considering doing does matter to him. And as I've said before, I think Peter has paternal feelings toward Neil, and I think that he's trying to resist those feelings. But Elizabeth's statement here seems to be her way of telling him not to dishonor those feelings for Neil by trying to dismiss them. I think that based on the scenes uh, that the two have had up till now and the conversations that they've had about Neil, that she's not only trying to discourage his attempts to suppress those parental feelings, but is trying to encourage those feelings. We've seen that he tends to be a checklist sort of guy, not given to emotional displays, not even really given to responding to things emotionally, or at least not with a positive emotion. He does get angry. He gets angry at injustice. He gets angry at testosterone. Um, he gets angry at people hurting others. But when it comes to expressing appreciation, affection, love, uh, he tends to try to hide those behind his own facade of casualness. And he will say things that indicate some sort of affection, but he doesn't want to admit to anyone, including himself, I think, the depth of his affections toward people. And I think Elizabeth's working on trying to get him to at least let himself admit his feelings to himself. Then once he can admit those feelings to himself, he can more easily admit them to others. Anyway, later, Neil tells Peter that he is sure that Walker is going to hit a particular branch of the First Unity Bank the next day. And Peter sets up surveillance and a SWAT team around the bank in question. But instead of catching Walker pulling off a heist, all they end up with is an alarm clock, an antique alarm clock, inside a safety deposit box, setting off the bank's sound-activated alarms. Of course, Walker shows up playing all innocent and yet managing to rub salt into the wounds. Peter gets called on the carpet, and Diane expresses disappointment in Neil, both for being wrong and for putting Peter in the untenable position that he's in with the DOJ, and ultimately, Peter, Neil, and the team are pulled off the case. Later, at the Burke home, Peter is venting at Neil when Neil, I think, tries to apologize, although it's in a rather indirect way. 
When we were at the hangar that day, before everything happened, I was going to tell you something. I didn't want to run anymore. If I'd gotten on that plane, regardless of whatever deal was made, it wouldn't have felt like freedom, because it was an escape. You're right, Peter. I have a life here. Back in the episode Vital Signs, Neil, albeit in a drug state, told Peter that he was the only person that Neil trusted. I think what we have here is a continuation of that admission. Uh, This is the part that Neil didn't say, or maybe wasn't ready to admit even to himself in that earlier confession. And he's also stating out loud, again, in a rather indirect way, that the arrangement he had made with Fowler was going to leave him looking over his shoulder. If you recall, I'd said back in the comments for Out of the Box that the only two resolutions to being used by the Unseen Mastermind was that you remain under their thumb or they eliminate you because they've either got to control you or make sure that you don't spill the beans, make sure that you aren't a threat to them. And only a fool would think that they could walk away. And as I said at that time, I don't think Neil was a fool. I don't think he could have reasonably believed that he could walk away and be safe. And here we have confirmation of that. He calls the deal an escape. In Neil's world, the criminal world, the term escape includes always looking over your shoulder. So he is acknowledging, tacitly acknowledging, but acknowledging that had he gone through with the deal, he would have still been looking over his shoulder because that unseen mastermind would have had to eliminate him to ensure his silence. Now, after his confession to Peter, the two of them try to understand Walker's behavior. Why would he send a card to warn the bank? To challenge them. For what purpose? It's a test to see what they would do. To run security tests on the bank to reveal its weaknesses. They realize they've been had. They've been played. But as they're figuring out the motivations behind Walker's actions, Jones calls. Banks all over town have security alarms going off. But since none of the banks involved were the banks that received Walker's card, Neil and Peter realize that this is a misdirect, that Walker's about to hit one of the five banks that he sent cards to, and that Renee Simmons is in danger, as Walker would need her to get into the vault. Now, this is the part that I referenced earlier that reminds me very much of the end of the Thomas Crown Affair. I'm speaking specifically of the 1999 version with Pierce Brosnan. I'm not exactly sure why it reminds me of that, because visually they they look nothing alike. But it does have to do with the whole idea of the misdirect and how it's executed. In the Thomas Crown Affair, Brosnan's character appears in the museum from which he stole the painting, and he's dressed in a suit, a bowler hat, and carrying a briefcase. As the cop and the insurance recovery agent investigating the theft are following his movements on video, they're suddenly overwhelmed with dozens of men of similar height and build, wearing suits and bowler hats, and carrying briefcases appearing all throughout the museum. As I say, it has visually no similarities to what's happening here, but it's the concept, I think, that I'm seeing the similarities in. It's the sort of concept of hiding a needle, not in a haystack, but with a bunch of other needles. The other thing about this is that, unlike the police and the FBI SWAT teams, Neil and Peter realize that the clue is not in the alarms, but the absence of alarms. I'm all at first unity. Their alarms are going off again. Half the banks in town are being robbed. I don't think so. Oh, you think it's a smokescreen? Yep. Neil and I are headed to Midtown Mutual. Midtown's one of the few that's silent. Exactly. 
In the 1892 book, The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is a collection of short stories, and one of those short stories is Silver Blaze. It's a mystery about the disappearance of a famous racehorse in the night, just before a race, and the murder of the horse's trainer. Sherlock Holmes solves the mystery in part by recognizing that no one he spoke to in his investigation remarked that they had heard barking from the watchdog during the night. Gregory, Scotland Yard detective, says, Is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? Holmes says, To the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Gregory responds, The dog did nothing in the nighttime. Holmes, that's the curious incident. The fact that the dog did not bark when you would expect it to do so while a horse is being stolen led Holmes to the conclusion that the evildoer was not a stranger to the dog, but someone the dog recognized and thus would not cause him to bark. Holmes drew a conclusion from a fact, barking, that did not occur, which can be referred to as a negative fact, or put another way, an expected fact absent from the record. But this sort of logic... The consideration of negative facts is not just a device for detective fiction or television shows. It has real-world applications. During World War II, researchers at the Center for Naval Analysis faced a critical problem. Many bombers were being shot down on runs over Germany. The naval researchers knew they needed hard data to solve the problem, and they went to work. After each mission, the bullet holes and damage from returning bombers was painstakingly reviewed and recorded. The researchers poured over data looking for vulnerabilities in the aircraft. And the data began to show a clear pattern. Most of the damage was to the wings and the bodies of the planes. The solution to their problem was clear. Increase armor on the wings and body of the aircraft. But their analysis was completely wrong. Hungarian Jewish statistician Abram Weld pointed out a critical flaw in their analysis. The researchers saw the bombers that had returned to base. What they didn't see was even a single plane that had been shot down. What the researchers had failed to understand was that the bullet hole data from returning aircraft had created a map of the exact places that the bomber could be shot and still survive, not the places where a hit to the bomber could be fatal. The surviving bombers rarely had damage to the cockpit, the engines or parts of the tail, this wasn't because of superior protection to those areas, but because they were actually the most vulnerable areas of the aircraft. And aircraft receiving hits in those areas were not returning. That is an example of what is often called survivor bias. Survivor bias is when one only looks at the data of those who succeed and exclude those who fail. And although what we are seeing in the police and FBI responses to the bank alarms in this episode isn't, strictly speaking, a case of survivor bias, it is an example of the same sort of thinking. Only looking at the evidence you have, bank alarms going off, not the evidence that you should have but don't. In this case, banks that you know are targets, but where the alarms aren't going off. Back in the episode, Peter and Neil arrive at the bank, only to discover that the robbers are already inside and are holding Renee Simmons. Neil says they need to break in to save Simmons. Peter objects, not having said anything about breaking in, also because he believes that their options for unseen entry were sealed when the basement of the bank was sealed after their tests. Neil tells him, 
No, the basement was the easiest way in, but it's not the only way in. They head up to the roof where there is an air vent that will let them gain access to the bank, but Walker already has somebody there with a walkie-talkie guarding it. Peter pulls off a shot that only a Hollywood screenwriter or a politician would believe could happen, uh, shooting the walkie-talkie out of the guard's hands so he can't alert Walker. Peter and Neil have entered the bank, and they begin to work their way toward the vault where Walker is taking Simmons. Walker forces Simmons to let him and his crew into the vault. Then he orders her taken to her office and secured to a chair with duct tape. Peter and Neil have a plan to rescue Simmons. Neil creates a distraction. Peter gets Simmons and releases her. The good news is that Peter and Neil do manage to rescue Renee Simmons, but the bad news is that they didn't manage to catch Walker and his crew. Next, we see Peter and Neil back at the FBI offices, and Walker is waiting for them with his lawyers. He's going to be suing the FBI for unwarranted harassment, defamation of character, and anything else he can think of. After Walker leaves, Peter and Neil are going over the details of the heist and getting frustrated. Peter tells Neil they need to come up with something fast, or else they could both be in trouble. Neil, of course, doesn't understand how anybody could blame them. They were correct about the bank and the robbery, while SWAT teams and the local heroes, as Mozzie always likes to call them, and everyone else were chasing alarm clocks. But Peter points out it doesn't really matter. What matters is they didn't catch Walker. Jones gives Peter the final tally of Walker's haul, $8.2 million. Neil says, no, that can't be right. He does some quick estimations and calculations based on the briefcases that they saw on the video with Walker's people as they were walking out. They couldn't have held $8.2 million. Neil says there is more than a million and a half dollars unaccounted for. Next, Peter and Neil head back to the bank to confront Renee Simmons. They discover her share of the take in a safety deposit box, but she manages to get the drop on them. Peter and Neil manage to reverse the situation by staging a disagreement as a distraction, giving Neil an opportunity to snag the two fake stacks of bills that contain the dye packs, which he then sets off, covering Simmons in the dye, including getting it in her eyes which gives Peter the opportunity to relieve her of the gun. After the FBI arrests Simmons, she makes a deal with them and talks, and so Peter's able to arrest Walker. Afterwards, Peter and Mozzie meet again in the park, and once again, Mozzie is in full paranoid mode. But once Peter gets beyond that, they have a heart-to-heart. -heart. How's he holding up? Better. I'm seeing the old Caffrey coming back. Good. Look, I know he won't tell me everything. I get that. He's Neil. I'll keep an eye on him and you. But that puts me in a position to clean up a mess, not stop it before it happens. Oh, that's the part you want me to take care of. Just tell me if he's going to do anything stupid. I can't rat out my friend. It's to protect him. That's the same rationale that was used by the Gestapo and the KGB. Look at me. He's my friend, too. I'll take that under advisement. When Peter says that he's in a position to clean up a mess, not stop it from happening, I think there are two motivations here for him. First of all, obviously, he doesn't want to have to clean up a mess. It's a hassle. It causes problems between him and his superiors. And it, it puts him underneath 
scrutiny that he really doesn't want to be under right now, especially after after the hearing with the OPR and DOJ. They've got more eyeballs on him, still going to have more eyeballs on him. And so he doesn't need the additional scrutiny interfering with him doing his job. But he's also concerned about Neil. He doesn't want Neil getting into a situation where he's getting in trouble. He's under additional scrutiny as well. And he doesn't want to see Neil compromise his developing life. Neil admitted earlier in the episode that, yes, he has a life here. But as much as he has this life and he seems to be enjoying it, he's still Neil. He's still tempted. He still plays fast and loose. He still doesn't think things through very, at least very far in advance, as I've, I've mentioned earlier. He acts and then tries to fix the problem that he's created from his acts later. Peter's trying to avoid that because that's what gets Neil into trouble. That's the very same thing that Peter said in the pilot episode. These are the types of scams and things that get you locked up. And he doesn't want that for Neil. Now, Mozzie, understandably, still has trust issues when it comes to Peter. He's still FBI, and therefore is part of the group that Mozzie doesn't trust. But despite that, he does seem to recognize, albeit reluctantly, that Peter really is looking out for Neil's best interests. Because in spite of everything, Neil is his friend. And whatever the issues Mozzie has with the FBI, he respects that out of Peter. He's still suit. He's still FBI. He's still do some suspicion, some level of suspicion, some level of distrust, at least in Mozzie's world. But he is a friend to Neil. And Mozzie, I think... Even if he doesn't fully accept and respect that, he does enough that he accepts the deal with Peter. But it is a struggle for him, and that's understandable. Next, we see Neil and Mozzie in Neil's apartment, and Mozzie tells Neil, something's not right. The forensic team in New York held the music box for two hours, and OPR requested it be transferred to Washington, D.C., but somewhere between New York and Washington, D.C., it disappeared and was replaced with a fake. And then we discover that Diana has the music box hidden away in a safe in her closet. Just a reminder that you can go to the official website for the podcast. That's www.whitecollaredpc.com. And there you can find links to the new podcast apps website where you can find those new podcast apps for your testing. You can also find links to all the resources that I used in researching this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming back for season two. And be sure and join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on season two, episode two, Need to Know. Until then, take care and God bless.